Hi humans, welcome to our podcast, Deconstruct. My name is Lauren. And I'm Adam. On this podcast, we want to help start or continue conversations about the beautiful and messy parts of life. Although we both had a conservative upbringing, we've since grown out of a lot of our traditional ways of thinking. We're learning to deconstruct the religious lenses we once saw the world through, breaking down topics like purity culture, racism, and the patriarchy, while demystifying things like feminism, equality, and love. Stepping away from our evangelical church background, all the while leaning into God and moving forward in our faith. We'd love to hear your story. You can find us on Instagram at deconstruct.pod. Now, on to the episode. Yeah, well, yeah. We're, we're here in Nashville, and so we're, we had quite the week. Yeah. Yeah, you did. How were you, uh, how were you affected by the tornado? Well, we do live in East Nashville, um, and so wow. it was like two streets away where things just got like demolished. Yeah. Um, yeah. So our power went out, um, but luckily about a, a day, it was just a day of it being out and we uh, got our power back, which is amazing. Yeah. But now it's just like trying to rebuild so East. Yeah. Yeah. It's been weird though. It's, it's been a very strange week. Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. Today we have Allison Fallon. She is a best-selling author and founder of Find Your Voice a community that offers workshops, coaching, editing, and support for anyone who wants to write a book. Yes, even if you're not a real quote-unquote writer. Um, (laughs) She's written and published 13 books and counting, coached hundreds of writers from total beginners to New York Times bestselling authors. She's hosted workshops all over the country and the world and helped hundreds of thousands of people use writing as a tool for their own personal growth. The book we're personally most interested in is her book, Indestructible, Leveraging Your Broken Heart to Become a Force of Love and Change in the World. Indestructible tells the shocking story of a marriage that didn't go as planned, the truth that shattered everything, and the beautiful unfolding of a woman who decided that saving her marriage wasn't worth losing herself. And that woman is Allison herself, and we get to speak with her firsthand. Allison, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. We're honored. So before we dive in, could you give us a little bit of your background? Sure. Um, I grew up in Portland, Oregon, and um, grew up in a pretty tight-knit faith community, family and faith community. Uh, My parents were on full-time staff with an organization that used to be called Campus Crusade. Now it's called Crew. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, um, and. Yeah, I was, was really involved in a church in my community, and that was just like part of the fabric of how I grew up. We were in the church building. It felt like every night of the week, it probably wasn't that often, but it felt like it. Yeah. yeah. And my parents, you know, like not on full-time staff at the church, but it, a part of leadership and um, just such a huge part of how I was brought up. Yeah. And professionally speaking, I, I always kind of knew that I wanted to write a book. I remember the first inklings toward that happening in elementary school or at least by middle school. Mm-hmm. But then by the time I was in high school and really making a decision about what direction my life was going to take, I was advised by um, really well-meaning adults in my life that writing is a tough way to make a living. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're not 100% wrong about that. So, <laughs> you know, so I, I decided to... Uh, take a little bit of a different route with my schooling and I got a bachelor's degree in English and then a master's degree in education and taught the public school system for a couple of years before I quit my job to write my first book. And that was when I really launched that, like professionally speaking, when I really like stepped into what I feel like um, is the career that I have now. And, and um, it was also a huge, you know, like leaving my, it was a decision to not just leave my job, but part of it was to leave the city of Portland, to leave my family, to leave wow. everything that I had known and kind of venture out into the world and figure out who am I and how do I want to be in the world. And mm. even though that has evolved quite a bit in the last, that was in 2010 that I made that decision. So it's been 10 years since I made that choice and it's a, what that looks like has evolved, but that was where it all started. Got it. 
And whenever you left Portland, were you married at the time? I not the first time, no. So in 2010, I quit my full-time teaching job mm-hmm. because I knew I wanted to write this book. And this was, it was partly, um, so two things. Number one, I knew that if I wanted to write a book, I needed something interesting to write about. So yeah. it was kind of like, here's some, here's what I'm going to do in order to have something to write about is I'm mm-hmm. going to move out of my apartment and sell all my physical possessions and go on this road trip across the country. So it was partly that. And then it was partly like, um, I partly think it didn't have anything to do with the writing and it was more like I knew I needed to shake things up in my life and I wasn't really sure how to do that without doing something really drastic. So it was a bit of a shtick, but I say that lightheartedly. It wasn't like, I didn't do it thinking like, well, this is going to make a great topic for a book necessarily. I do need something interesting to write about. And right now my life is not that interesting. It's been pretty predictable and organized and systematic. And Mm. it's like, okay, I live, you know, Portland's not a small town by any means, but it's, it kind of operates like a small town. It's got a small town feel to it. And, and I had like these really close family ties and church ties. And and then I have this really predictable job and Mm. it was kind of like, well, I guess if I don't do something different, I'm not going to have, I'm not going to really be have anything to write about, but then also the deeper implications of that are like, I'm not really living a life that's all that interesting mm. to me at least. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it was a, it definitely a big decision, but I left by myself that okay. um, when I left Portland in 2010. Okay. And so then how did you, speaking of big cities, small town feel, um, how did you then land in Nashville? Well, that's a much longer story that did have to do with, uh, the first marriage, which, um, so finished the road trip, came back to Portland. I'm going to speed through this really quickly, but came back to Portland. And when I was back in Portland is when I met this man who would eventually become my husband. We met because I had written an article about this trip that I had taken on a site that he happened to read every day. And he read the article and was intrigued by what he read. So he reached out to me and we connected um, online and he was in, we were, we were all over the place. He was in Minneapolis all the time. He flew me to Minneapolis and then we went on kind of a road trip and then got married and moved to Florida and moved to North Carolina and moved to Minneapolis and then moved to Nashville. Oh, wow. So it was like, yeah, a whirlwind couple of years. Crazy. The entire marriage, the entire engage, uh, like, like courtship engagement marriage lasted just over four years. Okay. So it was not in the scheme of life, not a huge amount of time, Yeah. but so much happened in that small amount of time that I didn't really have at the time. I didn't have a lot of clarity about what was going on. Right. In fact, yeah. I think I was just like, you know, when you move to a new place, you know, that feeling where you're like, I don't quite have my feet under me yet. Yeah. I had that yes. feeling for four straight years of my yeah. life. And then once, wow. once we were in Nashville and the dust started to settle, that was really when I was like, oh, mm. this is not what I thought it was. And yeah. this is actually, there's a, there's, there are more reasons than just the moves why I'm feeling so. Yeah. Unfold. Well, it's yeah. just like, I mean, you were kind of headed into a season where you were trying to open yourself up to a lot of new things and you weren't really looking for feet under you, but a little bit more adventure. So I'm sure it just kind of like yeah. all, all just kind of kept rolling. And then, yeah, lots I, of things can it's happen. It's true. One lesson that I've learned from all of this is that I do think because I had set the intention to um, like bring a little more adventure into my life and take some risks and that when I met him and it seemed like this, it actually seemed like a really risky thing to fly across the country and meet this man that I had never met. And then mm-hmm. to get married as quickly as we got married, it was a very whirlwind yeah. like from the day I met him to the day I, we got married it was like four months in a day or something like that. So um, it was, not, it was kind of ill-advised to be honest, but, um, I think the story that I told myself was like, well, God has kind of brought me this, this is God's will because I prayed that Mm. there would be, Mm. that I would have opportunities for adventure. And this is the answer to to that prayer that I prayed. And I just think like, I don't know, I can see why I made that, why I drew that conclusion and I try to have a lot of compassion for the choices that I made given the information that I had because I didn't have all the information. Right. But I can also, I also think more now in my life about like, you can make a decision about what you really want to do. You can pay attention to how you really feel about a situation and you don't have to assume that God sent this to you and this is your challenge mm. that he's given you. And so, 
you know, we have to, I have to like take on this challenge because right. <laughs> it's really stretching me and growing. I can just go like, I actually don't really want to do this. I don't enjoy it. <laughs> right. Well, the world itself is spiritual enough. You don't need to imbue things that aren't spiritual yeah. with some sort of spirituality. Yeah, I can. Yeah, I can super relate. Um, it sounds very similar. So I was once engaged to someone else. Obviously, I was engaged to Adam <laughs> before, but I was engaged to somebody else. Um, and um, my whole relationship with him was, you know, it was halfway through college and then it was two years after college. So um, I was changing and I was growing and I was evolving. And um, I was also after college, I was touring and stuff. So the the concept of like, once the dust settled and then you could kind of see things for what they really were. I right. definitely relate to that. Um, and hmm. I could once, you know, I was really solid um, because I guess in a way he was kind of, he was kind of stable or so I thought, <laughs> I thought he was like sure. a, a sense of stability in my life. And then when I myself was stable, whenever I was like, wow, like touring is actually going really well. I'm actually really liking who I've become. And it was becoming clear that he didn't like who I was becoming. Um, I, it was just, it was, it, yeah, the, the dust settled and I could kind of see things a lot more um, clearly. So yeah, I definitely relate to that. And the whole, you're not, just because I feel like a lot of the Christian messages um, specifically in the more like evangelical movement is like, you know, if something's hard, like that's where God is, you know, mm-hmm. if yeah. like, I remember being taught that, you know, if you have, if you're trying to decide between two things, just which one's harder, that's the one that you need to do because you'll trust God the most. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that was wow. like part of my, like, theology essentially it's like what I based my life around and so that's like why I almost got married to this guy um we had been dating for four years and all that because I was like well it's hard it's I'm I'm prepared and I've been told my whole life that marriage is supposed to be hard so um I guess I'm ready for it because this relationship is pretty hard um and then of course I'm really thankful that the dust did settle um and I could see things for for what they were but yeah, yeah. Thank you for sharing and opening up about that. Yeah, no problem. I think one thing I say to people all the time, and I talk about this a little bit in Indestructible, is that there are two different kinds of hard. There's mm-hmm. the the hard that we inflict upon ourselves because of the the, the hard that we um, create because of the choices that we make. So yeah. if I'm choosing to drink in excess every day of my life and I'm sick all the time, yeah, that's a hard that I that's self inflicted. And I'm not I'm not minimizing or being lighthearted about addiction even, for example, but right. even an addiction is a, a sort of self-inflicted pain that we're giving to ourselves. And I think most of us could easily agree that self-inflicted pain is not, it's not um, edifying. Right. It doesn't mm. do anything for us because we can in one fell swoop, let go of the pain and move on from it and not have that pain be a part of our life. And then there's pain that's completely out of our control. And I think that that's where we get mixed up is that that kind of pain, first of all, we don't have any control about whether it comes into our life or out of our life. Like I feel like I was just talking with a friend this morning saying it feels like we've had in our friend group, a wave of kind of tragedy, like health crises. And mm-hmm. um, we lost a close friend over the summer last year and yeah. just a lot of really hard stuff that's wow. happened, but it's like you, we couldn't have predicted it. We didn't invite it on ourselves. We're not bringing this on ourselves. We don't have any control over it. It comes to you. And when you face situations that are hard and you don't, and and they just happen, you, you do have an opportunity to leverage the difficulty as a way of getting stronger and growing. And I think that uh, we make a huge mistake when we conflate the two kinds of difficulty because, because then self-sabotage becomes like, you know, God's will, which is, mm. it's, it's twisted. Right. Right. And for you, whenever you left Portland in 2010 and then you went on this adventure, um, were you writing your book all the while or did it kind of stop and then you picked it back up or what was the flow of writing yeah. your book? I was writing every day as we were on the road and I thought I was writing my book but I was not writing my book. I was writing <laughs> blog posts and I was writing articles yeah. for other websites. And I was, mm. um, one of the things that now that I do work with authors and I've written a bunch of my own books, I, one of the things we talk about is that 
there's a difference between writing a book and just writing. So, and the two are not, they're not opposed to one another, but they are really different mediums and different practices. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of different kinds of writing we can do, right? Like we can write to make money, which is one thing I was doing. Like someone, I'm on the road. I'm like, um, taking every penny I can get. So someone's like, I've got 50 bucks for you. If you can write an article for me about XYZ. And I'm like, great, I'll sit down and do that. It's like me an hour. Um, so I would do that kind of writing. I would do writing that was like platform development or I didn't know to call it that at the time, but that's what I was doing where, uh, uh, like a website that was bigger than my website would reach out to me and say like, we think it's so cool what you're doing. Will you write your story for our website? And I would write my story for them. And that would be a different kind of writing. Um, I would do writing for my own personal growth and development, like just to process what was happening because, it's a lot to be living in your car essentially for, mm-hmm. uh, you know, nine months of time traveling across the country, um, in a different city every day. We understand. So I would write <laughs> kind of, yeah, you do to like metabolize what was happening around me and to try to like better understand what was, you know, like what my experiences were and how I yeah. was interpreting them. So I would do that kind of writing. And then the one kind of writing that I didn't know how to do and I, and just because I was of my naivete, I didn't know that book writing was so different than it is. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what brought me to the work that I do now is helping people see why they're not making progress on their book because they're not actually working on their book. They're working on other writing. <laughs> mm, yeah, that's that's really good. So do you feel like it's so like in that kind of space when you're talking to people about writing outside of their book or writing for their book or whatever, do you feel like it's wasted creativity writing outside of something that you're trying to do as like long form content or, or do you feel like it's like uh, creativity inspires creativity? And like, if you keep writing, you'll keep getting better and you'll keep finding spaces that you want to put things in different places. Like how do you, how do you feel about using a lot of different forms of creativity and mediums to, to inspire creativity? It depends on the type of writing you're doing and it depends on how much writing you're doing. So I, I think there's something really important to be said for creativity, inspiring other creativity. In fact, a lot of times I tell writers, the writing you do for personal growth and development and metabolizing your own life, like the private journal type writing you do while you're writing your book yeah. is actually some of the most valuable time you can spend. And, and it is challenging for authors because they're like, wait, but I'm not making any progress on my book. And I'm like, no, but you don't understand. You're actually fueling. It's like putting gasoline on the fire of your creativity so that you can start to make sense of what the book is supposed to be. But one big distinction I would make to that is, um, so one of the number one pieces of advice given to writers and especially new writers is to grow their platform. And the advice comes from a place of, in the publishing world, you're unlikely to get a publishing contract unless you have mm, a platform. Yeah. And what yeah, and what that basically means is like it doesn't it means something different in every case, but it's the publisher's wanting to know like do you have people that are paying attention to you and would buy a $20 product from you if you were going to sell it. So right. if you've got a million followers on Instagram, it's really easy for them to know like yeah, we've got a lot of people tuning into this person and paying attention to what they're saying. So the publisher is essentially saying um, go grow that number. Like go get your this is a too basic of a way to say it, but go get your Instagram following from 500 to 50,000 and then we'll talk. Yeah. The problem with that advice is I think that that kind of quote writing that you do for Instagram or you do for platform development or platform growth, it's not that it's not growing your skill set, but it's kind of growing a different kind of skill set. And I think they can often be in opposition to one another I think one of the fastest ways to get someone to write something terrible from an artistic perspective is to tell them to go write an Instagram caption. Yeah. <laughs> because it's just, it's two totally different things. So, um, so yeah, I, I find it to be tragic that authors are kind of sent down this path of grow your Instagram and growing your Instagram is one thing. But if you grow your Instagram, you don't at the end of the day actually write the book or finish this creative project that's kind of gnawing at you or pulling at you, then I don't really think you've made the kind of progress that you want to make. So, so that would be my, my caveat to that is that if you're, if you're, and the other thing too, um, is like the articles that I was writing for money in retrospect, when I coach authors, I tell them 
if you can find a way to make money that doesn't involve your writing, mm. then you're almost better off because you're, yeah. cause your, your brain is a muscle and it wears out right. after a certain amount of time. And it does get stronger the more you use it. Like now I can, I can sit with a manuscript for, you know, six hours a day, which not everybody can do. And I can produce, if I need to, I can produce like between five and 10,000 words a day, which not everybody can do because my muscle has gotten really strong. Yeah. But at some point, no matter how strong your muscle is, it wears out. Yeah. And so if you're using your muscle strength to work on an article for somebody else and you're getting paid 50 bucks, why not go pick up a ship at Starbucks and make 50 bucks and get free coffee and, you know, or whatever else. Yeah. And then come home and work on your writing and save your, save that muscle um, for your for, art. For working on you your art. Yeah. Yeah. So there, it's not that there's a right or a wrong way to do it. It's just, I think some people, some people think like, well, I've got to be a full-time writer in order to be Mm. considered a real writer. And I think that's bogus. Well, I mean, even Liz Gilbert, I mean, she talked about how until she, I think it was like eat, eat, pray, love, right? Not until that was like selling, it was like a New York best time, like selling book Mm -hmm. she had been writing for years but she had another she had another job like she she talked about how she kept her day job and she kept and then she kept the like romance between her and her writing alive um because she didn't want to put the pressure of her art and her creativity to she didn't want to um corner her creativity essentially and be like you need to make me money you need Mm -hmm. to pay my bills um, that's a great way. That's a great way that she said that. And I, I think, um, yeah, I think that if we could just get over the stigma that if in order to be a quote real writer, I have to be on the New York Times list or I have to right. um, be a full-time writer or I have to be getting paid a certain amount for my writing or I need a book contract or I need a publisher to validate me or I need, whatever it is, the list of things that we have in our mind that make us a real writer and just Assume that actually when you start digging into our, the most famous writers out there and the ones who we have fallen in love with their words, mm-hmm. you realize that almost all of them started working at Pizza Hut or the post office <laughs> or, yeah. you know, like they were writing their best, the kind of words that we hang on to for decades. They were writing those words while they were working some mundane job, you right. know? So, um, so yeah, and I quit my teaching job, obviously, to write full-time, but here was another pitfall I ran into that I didn't realize. I quit my job because I was like, I need to free up time to write, you know? And then when I was, once I quit the job, then I was spending all of my time writing these articles for other platforms and to, to make 50 bucks at a time and whatever. And I was like, oh, wait a second. The whole point was to free up time so that I could write. And now I'm realizing it's actually much more challenging. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it like loses sit down its... and do my own writing. It loses its like sacredness almost. It's like once you slip into that space. Yeah, true. So, you know, here on Deconstruct, (laughs) we talk about deconstruction and a lot of that has to do Mm -hmm. with, you know, religious backgrounds and faith backgrounds. Mm -hmm. Um, And obviously your book kind of involves part of your deconstruction and then your, your rebuilding and your healing. um, And, I was, you know, I'm wondering like how your writing helped you before, during, or even after your deconstruction. Did your writing play a part in your deconstruction? Yes, for sure. Well, so it played a part in the deconstruction and has played a part in the reconstruction, which mm. is, I would say, still in process. But yeah, um, part of what writing does, one of the most powerful things writing does is it, it puts you face to face with your own truth. Yeah. Because there, because of the part of your brain that writing is accessing, it's much more difficult to write down words that are untrue than it is to speak words that are untrue. So when you start a regular practice of writing and when you get into the habit of sitting down to a blank page every day and putting words on the paper, you, you start to see words and patterns and themes and names and mm. all kinds of stuff pop up. That you're like, whoa, I didn't even know I thought that or I didn't even know I felt that way or did I really just write that? Yeah. And you can trust with with relative confidence that the words that are coming up when you write are more more true usually than the words that come up when you speak. So you might say something like, No, I'm pretty happy, I've got a really good life. I mean, I have nothing to complain about. 
And then when you sit down to the page to write, you're like, I'm miserable. I hate yeah. my job or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's one of the, the beauties of writing. And I think it's one of the reasons why we avoid it too, is because especially for something like deconstructing a faith yeah. uh, perspective, when it's woven into the very fabric of who we are and how we were raised. And also when there's the shame and fear attached to it, like there is in a lot of more fundamentalist faith communities, mm. then you, it's, it's actually like a primal fear that's activated when we start to even consider stepping back from it for a moment. And I don't even mm. mean walking away from our faith, but I mean, asking questions about our faith that, mm-hmm. that feel sort of blasphemous to us. There's this primal fear that comes up and we're like, Oh my God, I'm going to hell because I just asked the question. Right. Is it really a bad idea for me to have sex outside of marriage? I'm not even doing anything. I'm just right. asking the question, <laughs> yeah. you know, it, rather than just accepting at face value, what's been taught to me my whole life. And, and I feel like I might actually die and go to hell. Like right. God can see me and I'm going to be struck down by lightning. <laughs> <at this moment. laughs> right. Well, cause people so are think- training you constantly to be in this space where like, if you're not ready to go to heaven at every moment of your life, <laughs> like you would, you could potentially die right now. And then you're going to go to hell because right in that yeah. moment you're questioning things. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's part of why the process of writing feels why we avoid it because we, we really don't at the end of the day, there's part of us that doesn't want to come face to face with our own truth, which is that we don't, we're not really sure Mm. what happens when we die. We're not, you know, um, like this is obviously for me, the deconstruction came because I married a pastor and I assumed a lot of things. I married a pastor. We waited till we were married to have sex. I assumed a lot of things about the marriage. Number one, that because I married a pastor, my marriage would be inherently more spiritual or safe somehow than if I had just married, you know, especially if I married a non-Christian, but if I had married someone just like kind of a normal lay person. Um, And then then the whole waiting until you're married to have sex was like, I assumed that our marriage would be safeguarded against infidelity. I assumed Mm. that um, we would have this really thriving sex life. I assumed... You know, and then we had struggled. We have been trying to get pregnant and couldn't get pregnant. And so then I was just like, I started to ask questions even before we split up that were kind of like, am I, is there, what's the reason why I'm so unhappy? I'm really unhappy. And I, um, I feel really not like myself and I'm not sure why we're not getting pregnant. It was a lot of questioning that was coming up for me even before we split up. And then when we split up, um, then it was all bets are off, you know, like there's something kind of great about having, I don't know. That's that's this is a strong way to say this, but the the benefit I'll say of having a tragedy in your life, like having like a sledgehammer come in and just crush everything to the ground is you have nothing left to lose. Mm. So then deconstructing feels a little bit less terrifying because you're like, well, I mean, everybody's already, I'm, I'm now, I have the scarlet D on my chest. I'm now a divorced woman. Yeah. Um, I divorced a pastor. So right. I, I don't go to church anymore. So what am I really, what kind of image am I really protecting now? So I guess, right. I guess I can go ahead and ask the question. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. I, I will say, you know, even hearing you talk about this, like, this isn't even something I've actually even addressed and spoken about here on the podcast, but yeah, my deconstruction really came to life when I wrote things down. There were two things that I started really writing about. Um, one thing was like, I started getting really inspired by like um, body positive art. And there's a lot of those yeah. artists here in Nashville. And I was a part of this project and um, it was basically I... I modeled nude for this, this artist. And so she painted me and all this stuff. Um, and she asked me to write down, um, it's actually, she was on our podcast, one of our first episodes, mm-hmm. uh, Ashley Tribute. And she asked me to write down for her project, my relationship with my body and my, my body image essentially. Um, oh, wow. and it's, it was really, uh, it was interesting because yeah, out loud, I'm a very, so I'm a very petite person. So out loud, I'm like, I'm good. Like I, I've never, I'm good. Like I, yeah, maybe every once in a while I felt bad because I didn't have more curves or whatever, but like, I'm fine. Like we're good. 
Um, and then I, when she asked that, I was like, okay, I don't really know what to say, but okay. So then I started writing and then like floodgates just were opened because I had a lot to say. Um, yeah. And wow. in that, so when I wrote all that down um, and I read it out loud to myself and then I ended up recording it and putting it to a YouTube video, um, I it like began my purity culture deconstruction, which is like yeah. a lot of a lot of people's kind of point of um, they're like their turning point. Their turning point, I guess. Yeah. And I saw that you had um, I saw you had Linda K. Klein on the podcast too. Her book is like amazing. Oh, oh it is incredible. Yeah. So yeah, so I, I you know, I after writing that out, it just I don't know, it awoken something. It awakened something that was like I don't know, that deconstruction. But anyway, um, so I can definitely relate. But yeah, I've never even, I had never really even put that together until you you were just talking about that. I'm like, wow, that happened for me. And then the other other thing was like another fundamental um, like theology that I had had. I started writing down like, well, what if, what if that's not true? Or what if I can, uh, you know, what if my gay friends are perfect and whole and, going to heaven like you know things like that and I started writing it down and that's Mm. truly and I and I wrote it down while I was working my mundane job that I have um (laughs) part-time and and it just really and I made a video about that and how I became an affirming Christian and just so on and so forth but yeah it really all began with writing so that's that's really interesting I wonder how many more people I love it if they wrote you know what what would happen This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Yeah, one thing I want to comment on too, just to like really emphasize this point for you is that I don't know if you have aspirations to write a book or if that's something in your mind, but I always tell writers, like, even if you don't ever have any dreams of publishing any kind of written material, Mm. the power of writing to help you create other things is inexplicable. Right. So like you talked about writing to deconstruct kind of privately, and then you recorded a video or then you recorded a podcast Mm. or whatever. And I think that that connection isn't unique to just you and it shouldn't be lost on us. Yeah. That writing is how we process and how we learn to think about a thing. And then sometimes we create visual art or we are a photographer or, um, or we are a filmmaker or whatever else. And it doesn't involve the written word at all, but the written word is how we, um, it's, you know, I tell people all the time, it's, creativity it's spirituality it's meditation it's prayer it's Mm. um self-reflection it's self-discovery it's communication it's connection it's all of those things so i don't think that we should divide the world into writers and not writers i think that doesn't make any sense at all (laughs) we're all writers yeah well it's just like when you when you flex any sort of creativity in any venue it's just going to open up so much more in you in so many other spaces i think it just like opens up an honesty in you yeah Especially for me, like True. I find if I find if I start listening to podcasts or I start drawing or writing or anything like that um, or playing drums or making music in any sort of capacity, like I feel like because music for us like is such a it's it's non nonverbal language. It's like you can just express emotions through it and you can just mm-hmm. you can't be anything other than honest with it because you don't have you don't have words that can that you can try to deceive yourself with or try to deceive the world with, you know? And you're just in this yeah. space where you can only feel and hear and move with with honesty. And I think each kind of creativity just feeds into itself and just feeds into creativity as a whole. Agreed. Agreed. So Lisa Gunger's book, The Most Beautiful Thing I've Seen, and Jedediah mm-hmm. Jenkins' book, To Shake the Sleeping Self, they're both about deconstruction. And Lisa and Jed are they're, they're very honest about their relationship with um, their family members, particularly their, their mothers. 
how yeah. how did you decide what to share and what not to? Because your book has a lot of really vulnerable moments, but I feel like you don't share as much about your parents or your siblings. Was was that intentional for you? Well, part of it is my parents and my siblings weren't as involved in the deconstruction process mm-hmm. because th- so there are like personal elements to my life that made that true. One being the relationship I was in was a really abusive relationship. I didn't really think of it that way until after it was over or at least until the very end. Mm -hmm. But one of the elements of abuse was the isolation from my family and friends. So not only did we move away from the city of Portland, but also there was a lot of rhetoric in our house about, um, well, I mean like not even just rhetoric. So there, some of it was more subtle and some of it was really over like overtly, he did not allow me to speak to members of my family without him wow. sitting in the room with me and listening because he was worried about what I would say. Yeah. And so that was like definitely some of the more over abuse that, um, yeah, was quite obvious, yeah. but then some more covert things too. Like he would just make comments about certain friends of mine, about how he had like heard a word from the Holy spirit that they were, there was something off with them and that they were untrustworthy and, you know, maybe there was something demonic going on in their life, like just a lot of really manipulative BS um, that kept me, it made me fear those people in my life. And it really cut off all ties Mm. to anyone except for him. And so, um, so because of that, I didn't have, I do have strong family ties. I'm really close to my family, but I, at the time when I was leaving the marriage, I wasn't like checking in with my parents to see if, that was cool with them. Right. (laughs) If I I made that choice, I didn't feel that draw because we hadn't, we really honestly hadn't had an honest conversation in over four years. And what was cool was like when I made the decision to file for divorce, which was after, you know, like uncovering a lot of some, uh, everything that had been going on that I didn't know about was like uncovering like a treasure trove of things. Mm. And I called my sister first and told her, And it was like the first, she could tell in my voice, it was the first time we'd had an honest conversation in four years, like I mentioned. So for her, she was like, oh my God, I have my sister back. Yeah. And we didn't start having the faith conversations until much later. And that has been, I can talk a little bit about what it's been like to navigate that because we do have, we have different perspectives and worldviews Mm. now. Um, But, and then when I calling my parents was really similar, I think they were like, they knew something was up with us and off with me. And so when I made the decision to walk away, I called them and I was like, this is what's happening. And, and I think my dad, my mom was immediately like, what can we do to support you? You know, I think she just had like a motherly instinct. My dad was a little bit more like, really divorce? Does that need to be the, can we talk with him? Can we? And I, and then I was just like, no dad, this is, trust me, it's much bigger than what, I can even tell you right now. Right. I don't know. Cause I, at that point I was like, I don't know how much to, to disclose to your parents, you know, like mm-hmm. this is going to be traumatizing for them too. Right. And so, um, so, but they were, they were both super supportive of every decision I made. And then over time, like I said, we have had conversations about um, not just with my family, but with friends from the community, like, well, and, my my first book published with Moody, which is a very conservative Christian publisher, and I had a lot of ties in the publishing world. I had worked with a bunch of really, really um, influential Christian authors, yeah, and had a lot of like alliances and allies in that world who were yeah. like we. I worked with a huge publisher that's tied to a like the Assemblies of God Church. Mm-hmm. Did a ton of work with them. Like almost all my work was coming from them. So yeah. like for me, the personal and the professional weren't totally separate. And when I started to, when I started to talk about stuff and even the divorce, it's like the divorce is enough to get people to ask. They were like, are you still going to church? How's your relationship with God? Wow. Are you mad at God? What's going, you know? So it was like, I was having these conversations with colleagues that you wouldn't mm-hmm. otherwise have colleagues ask you like, right. Oh no, are you still going to church? How's this going for you? Right. But because of the setting I was working in and they were very interconnected. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. And like for other, for other writers who want to tell the truth, you know, if they're writing about it, but they don't want to hurt their family, especially if they have a good relationship with them, but they don't like their family doesn't know the extent of the unraveling and the rebuilding of their faith or for those whose families may still be on the more fundamental or conservative side, how, 
how does one decide like what to share in their writing? Like how much of our stories is ours to tell? I think, you know, like, um, you have to gauge that based on, so are you talking about speaking to a family member about it or about writing about it publicly? No more writing about it. Okay. Um, so the, the, regardless of what we're talking about, whether we're talking about a deconstruction of faith or about like telling the truth of what happened in a marriage, which I had to do. Yeah. I think there are a couple of different things to keep in mind. Number one, there's the, for me, it always, when you're writing about someone else, there's the legal implication. There are just certain things that you cannot write about without putting yourself at legal risk. Yeah. So I had to talk to multiple attorneys about that. I had to get mm. some really great advice about what I was allowed to say and what I had to keep to myself. Um, my divorce attorney was really helpful in that. I had a couple other friends who were attorneys. I got a lot of advice, yeah. legal advice about what I was allowed to say and what I wasn't um, it, when it came to publishing the book. And then the other piece of it too, there was a really big shift for me. When I sat down to write the book, I was in a mode, I was freshly divorced and I was really right. hurt. I felt betrayed. I was like, I felt like a sense of freedom for the first time. I had been keeping secrets for a really long time in my life and keeping my mouth shut. So I was like feeling really liberated and like ready yeah. to tell the whole deal. <laughs> yeah. so I sat, sat down and the catharsis of writing was so alluring that I was like, I'm just going to tell it as it is. I'm going to tell every single nitty gritty detail. And you know, if he wanted me to keep his secrets, he should have stopped before he, <laughs> yeah. you know, whatever. Right. And, um, and I wrote the story that way. And to be honest, when I reread it, I was like, this doesn't even sound the way I want to sound. It sounds kind of bitter and mm. vindictive. And it makes the story all about him when it really wasn't about him in the first place. It's, right. it's a story that's about me and I wanted it to be about me. And I think this is another beauty of the writing process, right? Is you, you write something down, you see your own attitude very clearly. Like the truth of me was there on the page. I'm like, wow, you're a bitter divorced woman. Yeah. <laughs> this is exactly what you don't want to be. <laughs> right. And then I got to, I got to rewrite the ending, you know, like I got to reframe the story and tell it in a way that I wanted it to be. And I got to have the power of choosing my own words about how I was going to tell this story. And the shift came for me. I remember it was like a moment in time when, because I, I know so well how stories operate and how to put a story together in a way that's compelling for the reader. And one thing I always talk about is that there you have to identify who's the hero of the story and who's the villain in the story. And I was realizing that I had kind of put him in the position of the hero of the story. I had made the story all about him mm. and it wasn't about me at all. And and then I'm like, the question of like, I kept asking the question questions are so much of what drives stories. And I kept asking the question, like, how could he do this to me? Mm. And then I'm like, that's not actually a very compelling question. It's like, who cares how he could do it to you? You know, like he, there are infinite number of reasons of why or how he could have done this to you. But then Mm. when I shifted myself to the position of the, the protagonist in the story, then I realized that actually the question was, why does a woman marry a man she doesn't want to marry? Why did I walk down the aisle against mm. my better judgment when I knew, I really knew on my wedding day that this was a bad idea. Mm. I knew yeah. in my gut that I didn't want to do it is what I knew. And I did it anyway for a whole host of reasons because I thought this was going to, um, I thought marrying a pastor was like a surefire bet. I felt like he really loved me and that was what I had been looking for. There were a whole list of reasons sure. that I did it. And when I started exploring those reasons, I'm like, that's actually a really interesting story, not only because there's a clear protagonist who encounters a problem, who has to overcome obstacles in order to have a transformation, but also because it's just an interesting story that I think other women would sit down and read and be like, you know, they would resonate with it and identify with it. So I I wanted at the end of the day, when I rewrote the book, I wanted it to be a book where anybody could read it but especially a woman who was in a similar kind of position to me could read it and she could realize she's not a victim to her circumstance. Wow. She may have been victimized over and over again, but she does have the power to make the choices to change her life. And this is how you do it. Hmm. Yeah. That's powerful. When you finally could tell the whole truth of what happened in your marriage and life um, through your book and then just speaking, how, how has the response been? How have you dealt with people's, 
response to your book, good or good or bad? Yeah, the I would say overall the response has been positive. Like versus my first book, I, I like Amazon reviews are the worst any author will tell you, and yeah. I've gotten like really crazy Amazon reviews on the first book. Whatever, I feel like it's like so in the past now. It's only, I don't even really identify with it, but mm-hmm. but this book in terms of Amazon reviews and emails I get from readers are, are so overwhelmingly positive that that keeps me yeah. going and it keeps me really, it just keeps me feeling really good about having put that story out in the world. Yeah. The, the negatives have come more from people just deciding to part ways and go a different direction, which at, at first felt like a real blow. I mean, I think mm-hmm. I, my email list went from like, 22,000 to like 5,000 over oh, the course wow. of a couple months. People just, Dang. or maybe 8,000. I can't remember, but I lost like over half of the people who were. Mostly because you were already in. tied into that Christian industry. Yeah, I think because I was so tied into the industry and it was a combo of like divorce mm, plus the yeah. talking about, I was talking really honestly about what's going on behind the scenes in churches, you know, yeah, like right. it's not yeah. just my church where that was happening. And it's not just my husband who was a pastor who right. had a fault, like a quote fall from grace. It's like, right. we've created a system that is, that honors dishonesty. And, yeah. and I, it's, I'm not saying like men are evil people and they're just screwed up and whatever. It's mm-hmm. like, we've created a system that honors the men who act like heroes and gods. And so, so what else would a man do but act like a god? And then when you don't have anybody in your life who you can truly be authentic and honest with, then whatever shame you're feeling, which is part of the human experience, becomes toxic inside of you and you make choices that you wouldn't otherwise make. So yeah. I'm like, this is not an, an isolated incident to my situation. It's not. And I wanted to talk really honestly about that. And then the other big deal was, okay, so I find myself in a position at 30... Well, how old was I? 30 something years old where I am now divorced and in the dating scene again and dating at 30 something divorced is really different experience than dating at 21 or whatever and never been married. Um, and so I had to start figuring out like, what does it look like for me as a grown woman who is no longer a virgin to be dating in the world? Like, is there a a, sec- a sexual ethic that I can take on. It didn't make sense to me, to be honest. I'll be really candid. It didn't make sense to me to be like, I'm waiting until I'm married yeah. to have sex because right. I was mm-hmm. like, well, that kind of is over. Like right. <laughs> <laughs> already went out the door. So it wasn't like, I didn't feel like I had the willpower or discipline to do it. It was just like, that doesn't really make sense. Like, yeah. I, I don't know. And that, that, that approach didn't click for me anymore. And so, and also I felt like, I had done it the first time for all the reasons they tell you to do it. And it right. didn't turn out the way that right. it was, that it was. Promised. It wasn't, it wasn't so, the fairy tale that they spun. Exactly. And so I, it wasn't like I was like, hooray, I can go sleep with whomever I want. That was not at all my feeling or my approach. In fact, if anything, I felt like really timid and scared and whatever. Yeah. But I, I was like, we need a new women who are my age, who are in this position need a new way to talk about a sexual ethic. Like we yeah. need, we need like a new thing that, that can work for us. That's that we feel like has a morality and an ethic to us. Cause I don't think sexuality, I don't take it lighthearted, lightheartedly. I don't think it's a lighthearted thing, right. but I'm like, but that isn't just like, don't do it until you get married because right. that, that isn't cutting the mustard anymore. And so I started to write really honestly about that and talk about it. And that I think was a big part of what mm. it's one of the golden casts in the in that evangelical world um like if you want to get kicked out of the evangelical world you start talking about like how it's okay to have sex outside of marriage right, right. <laughs> or of course or you talk about how you don't think that you think everybody's going to heaven you know yeah. or right. there's like a couple of things you can say that will get you pretty quickly booted yeah. off the island yeah was writing what helped you build up back a sexual ethic or was it like listening to other people's podcasts or, you know, what, or was it completely alone for you? How did you build up like a a new sexual ethic? Yeah. I mean, I think writing definitely played a role for sure. Part of what writing does is it helps us to process our life experience and then to like organize our thoughts. Mm 
Mm. Good writing, I think, is good thinking more than it's good grammar. A lot of times we think it's like, to be a good writer, I have to have perfect grammar, and I don't think that's true. Sometimes the most helpful writing can literally be like a bullet point list. Um, So I did a lot of writing about it, but I also did a lot of reading. And I I don't know if at the time I was like, really into podcasts, but I, um, but I did, I mean, I was listening to Rob Bell's podcast mm. and mm-hmm. n- nothing specifically about sexuality, but definitely like some faith things. And, right. um, Lin- I mentioned this earlier in the episode, but Linda K. Klein's right. book here mm-hmm. was like a huge, I, it, what's crazy about that is this to me is the power of the written word is I, you, you kind of touched on something similar to this, but like, I was like about the purity culture. I was like, you know, this has definitely had an impact on me. And this has been, mm-hmm. this is like, I definitely feel, feel this. Yeah, sure. This has been a problem, but it was kind of like in my head more than I didn't feel like this is like really had an impact on me yeah. until I read her book. And then it was something about, I mean, mm-hmm. literally in the process of reading her book by this time, by the time I read her book, I was, um, I was already dating my now husband and I told him, I was like, I, I feel sick. Like I feel like physically ill reading this book because it's resonating so deeply. And I don't think I knew, I don't think I realized how big of a role purity culture played in my, like I was, what I was feeling was shame. Like I didn't know how ashamed Mm. I felt of my own body and my sexuality and um, just being a woman. Yeah. Like, yeah. Literally existing as a woman in the world, I felt shame about that. And so right. um, it was helpful to read other people's words and feel validated for sure. Yeah, yeah, totally. And you talk about um, therapy and yoga and writing as, you know, tools you use for healing and rebuilding. Are those are those the top ones you recommend for other people too? I mean, I recommend other people use what works for them. But I will say in a world we live in that keeps us in our prefrontal cortexes most of the time in our like we might say colloquially in our heads we live in our heads most of the time it is really helpful to find tools that help you drop into your body and I would actually say Mm. normal talk therapy doesn't really do this as well as like EMDR or any of the Mm. trauma modalities or um, yoga is a fantastic way to do that writing like expressive type writing not necessarily writing to publish but expressive writing is a fantastic way to do that but even simpler modalities, if you're like, wow, that sounds expensive because it kind of is, <laughs> yeah. um, then simpler modalities like just posting a candid conversation with a group of friends where people can ask questions and um, and going for walks and, um, you know, uh, like other ways. Listening to podcasts is great is, and reading books is great, but it, it does have a tendency to keep us in our heads. So yeah. if you can find ways to like move your body, gather with people, um, uh, to stay in motion and to drop mm. from the part of your head that's the part of your brain that's reasoning through things and telling you like, this isn't really that big of a deal. That's a long time ago. Like don't, right. yeah. don't overreact about that and drop mm. into the part of your body that'll be more honest yeah. and say like, I was actually really traumatized by that one youth group session yeah. where, you know, they like, put some pee in the water and told me that's what was me if I had sex before I was married. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. we were just talking recently about how even even if your mind dissociates from trauma that you've had in the past, that your body will hold it for you. Mm-hmm. Where oh, yeah. no matter what you do to try to like just move past traumas or try to invalidate things that happen to you, your body still will hold it for you. And it's like once yeah. you have that that ability to be able to sink into your body and and just let it release tensions. I mean, like people say all the time, right? That um, if you experience something that even even is uh, artificially traumatic to you or or stressful, your your body doesn't know the difference. Oh yeah, the chemicals that are oh, firing in you are still going to be the same as if you were really experiencing trauma and stress and anxiety, and and so. Yeah the the parts of your body that are primal and just like which they, is all of it <laughs> yeah right well i mean body. if you can really root down into it it is and and i think that is the essence of of is of writing but also of just meditating on things that that you feel rather than always having to put some sort of rule and language to it yeah yeah 
agreed. Okay. Our bodies are much more honest with us than our brains are to be to be to be real. Like yeah. you you this is why let's say you walk into a restaurant and you bump into an ex boyfriend or girlfriend mm. and your body has this response like, Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> right. like, that gut sinking feeling. And, then, and your brain is like, be nice. Be, don't make yeah. a big deal out of this. Like act cool, act casual. You're fine. Yeah. Right. And, and your hands are like we, ringing. <laughs> yes. And we need both parts. Right. But yeah. we, but to ignore what your body is telling you, and and then to override it with your brain, which is what most of us are doing most of the time, is yeah. not helpful to us in the long run because we never get to really process the truth of what's going on. Right? Do you do you ha- do you know the Enneagram? I do. Yes. So I'm a five wing um, four. Um, okay. And so as a five, I'm super in my head. Um, and the like basically the thinker, it's like the, the investigator, and then the four is like yeah. super feeler. So like the yes. battle between my emotions and like my head is very strong. And I feel like lately, very recently, I've discovered like I have really bad social anxiety. And so I've I've recently discovered that like before I walk into any place, like turning on music and like straight up dancing in my car, not like just like humming yeah. to a song, but like I have to move mm. my hands, specifically my hands is where I hold like every emotion in, in the world ever. Um, my hands are very expressive. Um, <laughs> and yeah, as, as, as long as I'm like moving my hands and my arms and like, you know, just whatever I can, it helps me so much to walk in and be like, okay, it's okay. It's okay. Um, getting that like body mind yeah. alignment. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great example of a totally free way that you can drop into your body. That's really great. Yeah. Love that. I think for me, it's, I mean, and I'm just kind of thinking through this as we're going through it, but we had a pretty similar experience in the Christian industry where it was like once we started deconstructing and finding finding space to get rid of purity culture and all those kind of things and start moving past those, uh, we had a strong backlash coming from people who once supported us and um, people who had an idea of what it was that we represented in the product that we were putting out there. And I think... You know, people tend to be more honest online with who they are. Like you can kind of see people's true colors online. And I think it's because it affords you the opportunity to react to something without having to have any mm-hmm. social um, that kindness or, or softness toward it. You can just kind of react in your own space and your mind doesn't stop you from feeling what you feel in your body. And then you have, and then people tend to take that toward negativity. But I think... I think for us reading a lot of a lot of the things where people disagreed with us and and were coming against what we believed in so strongly it almost reinforced for me my deconstruction because it gave me the space to to see what it was that people disagreed with and then feel the honesty that my body was portraying and the things that I was that I was truly feeling um and I think I think that helped me move through a lot of the 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 deconstruction and kind of recoming up with ideas of what it what it really means to live into spirituality and and all of that. But Adam's a four though, so that's that's a different. Oh yeah, I'm a four too. <laughs> yes, I'm a four with a three wing. So. Oh my gosh, well, and I'm resonating with what you're saying. Yeah, I, I feel similarly. Like, um, there's something about what happens when people oppose you is you actually realize like I'm cool. I'm if you're gonna reject me. Mm. then I'm actually okay. Yeah. And that it almost like it helps you to settle into the worldview that you have, knowing that like this changes, you know, people's worldviews change as they grow older and have life experiences. And it's like, I'm, I'm actually okay. Like if, right. if 10,000, 15,000 people want to unfollow me because of something I believe about life or sex or God or whatever, then that's okay. Like I, yeah. oh, I'll live. Yeah. Right. Yeah. A lot of the, the, a lot of the guests that we have on, if you listen through our, our episodes, most everyone's a four. <laughs> oh, we, I love it. We have a lot of people, <laughs> deep, deep thinkers, uh, and people who are feel in the same way that it almost helps solidify who you are. Um, yeah. Well, it's cause the fours are the ones who are all questioning. We're all like exploring the deep questions of the world. Everyone else is like, Whoa, I guess I don't really know why we need to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Well, I mean, is if unless there's anything else like you would like to add, um, 
I would like to just thank you for yeah, seriously, for thank you so much being on the podcast today with us, and we just really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you for having me. Yes, everyone, go follow her um, on Instagram. It's Ali Fallon. I'll make sure I put uh, all of her handles and her website and everything down below. So make sure that you check it out. Um, and yeah, so thank you guys so much for listening. And until next time, bye. bye.